Hey, thanks for joining me for another episode of Spoke. I'm your host, Scott Crawford. This week we spoke with Jesse Mallon. Jesse's one of the few songwriters out there that have that have gone from playing hardcore punk to like blitzed out glam rock to singer songwriter um, material, and he he's done them all equally. He, not only does he uh, is he always writing new music and putting out records. So I think he's put out nine records um, as a solo artist in uh, like the last. 15 years or so, but he's also collaborated with everyone from Lucinda Williams um, to Bruce Springsteen. Jesse's been around, and he's almost like the punk rock mayor of New York City at this point. Um, and so I was really interested in talking to him and just talking about his long career. Um, you know, his band Heart Attack was the first hardcore, one of the very first hardcore bands to come out of New York City. And he was 12 when he was in that band. So not only did we cover the early 80s through the mid-80s, but we went into his career in the 90s and beyond. So I think there's something here for everyone. He has a new album coming out on September 25th called Sad and Beautiful World, which I'm really looking forward to checking out. I've heard a few of the tracks, but not the full album. So thanks for listening. And once again, this episode of Spoke is sponsored by my friends over at Kachunk Records in Annapolis, Maryland. And music is provided by Michael Hampton and So Rob Habibian. If you like this show, please do me a favor and share it with your friends and help get the word out about uh, Spoke. It's the only way this show will continue to be successful is if we continue to get new listeners which begets uh, additional sponsors. I think you get the picture. So again, um, thanks for tuning in, and I think you're going to enjoy this episode with Jesse. Jesse, thanks for uh, joining me on this uh, episode of Spoke. I appreciate it. Sure. Happy to be here, Scott. Cool. So um, how is this? I thought about you a lot over this past year and a half, being in New York City, um, having, you know, you own, I don't know if people, everyone knows this, but you own several clubs or you're co-owner of several clubs. Um, you weren't able to play. Um, with, how did you deal with that? I mean, um, were you able to take advantage of the small business loans or anything, or were you just sucking wind? Like, how we, did you? I mean, as a um, as an artist, you know, we were out on tour doing a, a record that was just to put out Sunset Kids, and probably was one of the records that was doing better than most of my records in whatever this music business day and age is. Probably Such a great record. Oh, thanks. Since my first album, and we were in the middle of a tour, and it hadn't really hit the UK, and they sent us back home, uh, you know, we went out during the European leg, and everybody in New York was freaking out, and, and I came home, and uh, I had recently broken up with, with my girlfriend, and uh, I had just came home, you know, all excited about a tour that, you know, was looking so promising, where we were selling out everywhere, which we hadn't done in a while, and making back-end money for that, and 
all these nice reviews and people really connecting to the songs. I mean, you make a record, that's fun, but to go out and then play them and take them in front of people under hot lights and, you know, microphones and smoky root, whatever, like getting the dirt sure. of it makes a difference. Maybe not so much smoke, but it was a thing you go home and then and sit here and it just kind of, you know, we all thought like everybody, oh, this will be done in a couple of weeks. And by Tuesday, I got home on a Saturday. I think the last gig was Friday the 13th of March. Uh, by Tuesday, there was supposed to be my friends do an annual, uh, Patty's Day show, the Hardcore Band Murphy's Law. Oh, sure. I don't, I don't go to a lot of hardcore shows these days, but I yeah. grew up with Jimmy G. He's one of my best friends, and uh, right. it's a real tradition, uh, the, the Patty's Day Murphy's show. Yeah, I've heard about them, yeah. And so I was planning on going, and it, you know, obviously the, the city was shut down, the, the whole state was shut down, and nobody really knew it, and so we were kind of, it was pretty scary and freaky. I have uh, four places that I have partners with, right. a lot of them are artists and musicians and people on the scene that we opened up. I mean, I got into the club business with some money from my first record deal with my old band, Degeneration. Yeah. But we really learned a lot of that stuff putting on hardcore shows and alternative type of benefits during the 80s when we were in our teens and learned how to do that uh, specifically at a, a loft on 24th Street, a guy named Giorgio Kamelski who had produced the Yardbirds and managed them and the Stones a little bit. And he just would lend his space to anybody and, and let you you know learn how to do all this. In fact, uh, we did one, one night where uh, DOA was playing a show with Channel 3 and uh, – um, somebody else, and they want at Irving Plaza here in New York, and they wanted to charge twenty dollars. And it, for kids on New Year's Eve, we felt it was so offensive, and uh, we felt bad for DOA and, and and Channel Three, and I forget who the third act was. So we put on an opposition show for five bucks at this loft, at the George Okamelski loft, and uh, with NBC and Reagan Youth, False Prophets, who were a big part of it, Heart Attack, Nice, uh, Misguided, and and a bunch of bands. And in the end of the night. Um, you know, the DOA guys showed up there and everybody kind of came and you know, knew it was like the right thing. In those days, those things mattered so much, like five bucks. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, anything you know. anything above five bucks was, you know. Yeah, 20 bucks was like offensive unless it was, you could live there or something. But totally. but uh, and at that that night, it was our back line was up and, and actually some friends got up there, uh, Harley Flanagan and Jimmy G, and started playing Wild Thing and all these goofy songs. <laughs> nice. And it was the first Murphy's Law uh gig or whatever there right so but like so it had these things i have these clubs and you know it's a great thing for people that don't want to be on the road with me anymore or other artists that i know we'd always be able to give people jobs and bands can rehearse in there when we're not um we're not playing shows at night you know with bands we just try to help the community but also to get by in the new york time rents and the crazy you know millennial world here we have to have these dance parties and things that aren't uh maybe where our heart and soul is to make right. the bills and then we can have you know handsome dick play there this saturday or whatever's going on right you know like right. so um it's a balance and uh the weekends do pay the bills and that's like kids jumping around to you know whatever uh hip-hop and justin bieber or whatever so it it was crazy to see it all crushed down i didn't know what was going to happen i was sitting here i'm not a technical guy i got some support from my manager to say like why don't you try like a you know a doing some kind of live stream off your phone and i was hesitant but i kind of just set it up on a little no nobody was around each other and i set it up on a little makeshift tripod with some gaffer tape and my iphone and and i created a just got up there and said you know what i'm gonna play acoustic and i'm gonna tell some stories and i'm in my house so i got my books and records and magazines and yeah i remember that yeah so yeah. I'll, I'll go up there i'll play acoustic i'll tell some backstory i'll try to make it like 
Mr. Rogers meets, you know, some busking punk show or something. Right. right. And uh, it, I was surprised at how, you know, nervous I was to, to play and not have any applause or just the sounds of being alone. And I had had COVID. I didn't know. I thought it was like a cold or something when I was. Oh, on you did. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And I was feeling kind of crappy still, but I didn't really know until I, I got tested. And uh, it was nothing like some of my friends in some of the fatal situations that right. we saw. And I got up there and just started to do it. And, and all these people were connecting. I had my uh, old manager and tour manager, Jillian Stoll. She was doing the um, conversation, the comments. And I guess it just somehow connected. So we said, let's do this again. And from doing that over and over, building the show each week with different themes, I started to have guests. Uh, I was encouraged by these people at a place called Rolling Live uh, that have yeah, and uh, they had had Danita from L7, who I've known for years, and her husband Robert connected me with a guy named Kerry Brown. Yeah, Kerry and uh, what is it, Nate over there? Nate, all really good yeah. people. And Matt Pinfield was in the loop, who's a wild man that I know, you know, full of information and energy. And so um, I just started to do my interviews on there and my show, and then I combined them and called it The Fine Art of Self-Distancing, uh, right. a goof on my first record, The Fine Art of Self-Destruction. Sure. And uh, so I would see who was around, you know, actors, friends like Michael Imperioli or singers like Debbie Harry did it and Jim Jarmish and Craig Finn and Brian Fallon. And we were supposed to have uh, somebody on, Jimmy G, speaking of, and he uh, couldn't do it at the last minute. I forget what happened. And I got HR in 15 minutes. And wow. I was scared to interview HR because he's one of my heroes and we're friendly and we've done stuff. But you just don't know you know, as you could imagine what you're going to get. And, yeah. It's uh, a little unpredictable. Yeah. He is such spirit. that can go either way. He's such yeah. a character and, and you got to, you know, what, what kind of thing he's going to be going as an interview. I don't know if that's something he loved and he was so warm and open and I, I felt like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. And I enjoyed it so much. And I was able to get some things that out of him that, you know, I remembered that made such an impact on me and my friends and, and history in my eyes. <laughs> so it was cool and what he was up to. And, and and then he became part of my show doing positive blessings at the beginning of the shows wow, um, that we would great. have him send in. And, you know, nobody could work. So if an artist yeah. came on the show and did something, once we were able to get out of uh, the apartments, I started to do it in this basement. And then I went to Bowery Electric, which right. was closed. One of your clubs. Yeah, one of my clubs. And I set up cameras and I had out-of-work camera people that I knew from the neighborhood, a guy across the street, my friend Xander, my friend Dave. And they started all getting involved in it. And um, It looked great. Yeah. It sounded oh, great. So we started doing that and it became a thing. And to have the guests were part of it and to try different things, do different albums, do a cover show. Uh, we had a cover show. We did everything from, you know, Jim Croce to Bad Brains and, you know, like just really uh, – like my record collection, I guess. But, and it was a way to stay connected. And I guess what I realized as much as I hate all this stuff, like I'm always the guy like get off the internet, get off your phone. It's about being in person. Sure. But what it did was it brought us into countries and cities and places that I don't get to go to like South Africa yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and places, you know, around the world that hadn't been in New Zealand. And, and then there's folks that don't go to shows anymore because maybe they're not well or they can't afford it or whatever. They're stuck with some job that doesn't work out. So there were all these fans that. Or that their could, back hurts. <laughs> all these people could. Yeah, exactly. That's it. So it, it just did its thing. And we, we were trying to raise money every week for um, sometimes it would be for my road crew. Sometimes it was for my band. Sometimes it would be for the club, for the GoFundMes, for Berlin and Bowery Electric. And then we started to do uh, – 
for Save Our Stages, which uh, we connected with the Joe Strummer Foundation. Yeah, yeah. Um, this guy David Sunshine, who who runs Dark Horse and uh, and uh, Joe's um, widow Lucinda, and, and so we we did a, a Joe Strummer birthday thing, and that connected all these artists. And what I got from it of this thing was not only that you could reach all these people, but if you want to do this bill that we do every year for music and memory and the Joe Strummer foundation, you're in LA, we do it, we do it in New York, whoever's in town and whoever can make it. But with this, people could be anywhere in the world and send in a submission and be like, all right, put my name on the flyer. Josh Homme is in California. And and, you know, the guy from the strokes is in New York or like whoever it could be. Someone, Don Letts could send something from England and Matt Dillon was in Italy and suddenly it, it grows like that. So there is this thing of everybody can contribute from different places. And suddenly, if you edit it right, you have this this uh, kind of interesting, wonderful tribute to Joe that raised a lot of money for, for independent venues in, in the country, in America, to save our stages, Neva folks. And so I was kind of crusading on that. And I didn't really know if we would get it. And technically, uh, to be honest, our clubs in the end didn't get it because um, the venues I have aren't really huge and you have to show that you make admissions from the door, um, from the gate. 70% of your profit was one of the rules on the um, SVOG grant. And we make our money at the bar. It's an old school thing, like almost sure. like CB's was where, all right, you take the door of the bands, pay the sound guy, pay the door person. The rest is yours. You pack the place, you're loaded. The bar will take the bar. So yep. if we, if you're doing all ages, so you got to restructure the deal because the bar's yep. going to have sodas, you know. But yep. there's less of those these days. So it was it was a tricky thing, but I got through it with playing my music with my band in this basement. And then once things loosened up, we started to work on a on a new record, which was supposed to have been done, but uh, we we kind of couldn't finish it. So a couple of the singles came out during the the lockdown, which was kept things going a little bit. But it was a strange thing that then my record's coming out now in September that to delay finishing something, it was, it was quite odd, but you know, there's no rules in how all this goes. And I think just creating something and the connection and know people were out there watching, you couldn't see them, but you could kind of feel what was happening. Um, it, it kept us going. It kept me, me sane. And actually was the only finances coming through to, to really live on at that time, uh, you know, with everything canceled and, and the clubs all closed for, for all that time. And then little by little things opened up without, you know, selling a drink out a window or this or that. And, and, some right. places, and a few of my places couldn't open up cause they were like their basement, like indoor things that don't have like a shed outside where you can, you know, have your jazz brunch or whatever. <laughs> so. Right. Right. So, uh, this is a pretty ambitious record. It's a double album, correct? It is. Yeah. I don't know if, um, I should get, if you've gotten a copy and get Carla to send it over my publicist, but yeah, it, it was the first time I've made cover records, made a live record. And then yeah, you've done a things. lot. Well, just different things. I don't know if it's a lot, but you know, I was like, you know what? Like a couple of these singles came out already. We got this body of work. We're trying to figure out how to sequence it. It's driving us nuts. A lot of my favorite records are the double ones. And we were like, you know what? We made Sunset Kids. This came fast after it. Let's let's do this. Let's see if we can create two sides. And I've always, you know, loved mellow, you know, Neil Young, Elton John, storytellers, like I was saying, Jim Croce, even the mellow side of the replacements or the stones or the clash, the ballads. And I've always loved stuff that had energy. And so I had this idea that one side would be roots rock and it was, you know, like an Americana side and a rock side. So we made a joke like roots rock 
radicals. So it's like the Roots Rock side, but it, it's kind of put together like that. And also the fact that a few of the singles had come out. So for the core fans that they would have, when they finally got the album, there would be some more, a lot more stuff that they hadn't had before. And, uh, right. But we'll see. I was going back and forth. It's a little bit of a thing grandiose to say, you know, what am I making here? The white album or Pink Floyd, the wall, like it, you know, so hey, it's more if, like, you know, if who's can make Zen arcade, you can make a double album. <laughs> right. And then the Minutemen do it. Was it double nickels? Double on, ni- nickels on the dime. Yeah. So yeah. they did one too. So well, my friend just it, said that the other day and I was like, all right, I don't, I don't know. Those, it's time to bring back the double album, I think. Yeah. Well, that's fun. As long as I don't do the triple, I would, we, we, <laughs> With speaking of the strummer thing, we had done the London Calling record uh, at the last year because it's the anniversary, and you come up with these themes and just to make it fun. So we learned that whole album, and we did it in a few cities, and and that was so great. Let's go back in time for a second. Um, so you were twelve when you started um, playing in Heart Attack, which means that you were must have been like 11 when you started to get into punk rock. Cause you don't just get into punk rock and start a band the next day. Yeah. So, you know, am I right. It's true. I, I was into kiss when I was 10 and okay. army and I would have done anything for them. I would have cut off a finger. I mean, we were, we bought the magazines every week. We were at that age where it really hit us with the songs, yeah. the energy and the older kids that like Sabbath and Zeppelin and so on. They they would say Kiss sucks, and you know you kind of get pushed around and sure. made fun of, and sometimes even beat up. And yeah. so you know, but Kiss meant so much, and and so you're kind of a freak in a weird way. And I, what that was was preparing me. I didn't realize in my That's friends right. for being into punk because when we got into punk, you suddenly weren't just hated by the kids that like Zeppelin and Sabbath. You were hated by everyone. everyone. The disco kids and this, and they figured if you're into punk rock because of Sid Vicious and stuff like that, you killed your girlfriend, you're homosexual, you're a heroin addict, or right. you know, say two out of three ain't bad. But like, it's like <laughs> it was really rough and it was homophobia. Yep. And, you know, I'd go into the city, I guess when I was 11, I started taking trips on the subway. My mother worked in, in Bloomingdale's and I would just wander around and buy posters and yeah. go to record stores. And then eventually found my way down to the village going to see i think rock and roll high school mm-hmm. i walked the wrong way going to west 8th street trying to find the 8th street playhouse theater and i ended up on st mark's and I, at that time oh, wow. what it looked like i thought i landed from another to my tribe i'd found my tribe landed yeah. on the planet that i'm supposed to be on and dead boys posters and windows and ramones yeah. like life-size standees and it was trash and vaudeville and like five million other stores but it was scary as i walked further east it got scarier and scarier sure. and shit laid out on the sidewalk people selling stuff on sheets yep. and yep. people yelling and crossing in the middle of the street <laughs> and i turned around and found um found eighth street and found the movie theater now i had got turned on to punk rock because i saw the sex pistols on some little tv show and it was crazier than kiss like i was like this makes me want to like break my room apart like everything start over like I was mad at the world for some reason. My parents had been divorced. I had I'd moved a lot. I had to wear a patch over one eye before I was into rock and roll and glasses. I was always the new kid being made fun of. So I became the class clown and I identified with characters like uh, Nicholson and Cuckoo's Nest at a very right. age of eight or nine. I saw these films and movies was my way into uh, understanding and learning about the world. And my mother was a single woman in her 20s. So I had some babysitters and they would 
bring records over and you know i'd read mad magazine movie spoofs to try to learn about the films i couldn't see and we'd sneak into theaters and see all this so characters like Pacino's in Dog Day Afternoon, Sonny oh. Warwick, or it was these people that were just going to go out there. And, and uh, so I didn't feel like I fit in. And so punk kind of spoke to me that it was okay. Like we weren't alone to feel like really different and mad and crazy. And, right. and, uh, and it was this thing. And then the Ramones, I had liked the uh, Happy Days was a show I related to probably right. a lot at this age. And they wore the same jackets as Fonzie, the yes. left of the Brando MC. Yes. They were from Queens. And even though it was really simple, they had anthems the way Kiss did, where you beat on a floor tom and you shout a few things in the That's air, right. you know, like whether it would be lobotomy or it would be, you know, rock and roll high school, whatever it would be. It was, it wasn't that different than rock and roll all night and party every day. So the Ramones, I realized it was so close to me and, and I felt the connection. So I was really into them and a little bit of the pistols. And I, then, uh, the kids at the 8th Street Playhouse that were waiting online that day to see the Ramones movie said, you never heard of The Clash? And I said, no, I didn't. You know, And they said, they're better than the Ramones. And so I went and bought those records. So for a while, I knew the three food groups of punk rock, yeah. Clash, yeah. Ramones, and the Pistols. Yeah. And then I was into some of these other groups that were, I couldn't understand what they were, but I would see them on like Midnight Special. Like I, ACDC with Bon Scott seemed like right. so subversive and fucked up his voice. And we were into energy because Kiss would jump around. Yeah, sure. So when I saw Angus, I was like, wow. You know, it was before I saw HR, before I saw nothing like that. that and I was like, this is great. And I snuck into the city to see ACDC open for UFO. I was 11. I went alone on a Sunday night. And Bon Scott came out barefoot in like bell bottoms with no shirt and tattoos. I'd never yeah. seen anybody with tattoos. I was scared of him. Now yeah, he's kind he of funny. But yeah. yeah, it was frightening. And yeah. and the whole thing, and it was like six bucks. And I don't know, I went back. To, I didn't stay for UFO because I, I watched the song and they had keyboards. <laughs> I was like, no. no. <laughs> you know, had all these rules. No keyboards. Yeah. So, but, the same way. Yeah, you had all these weird rules when you were that age. Like, you know, if the album artwork was bad, you know. I'm not going to buy the record or if right. they keyboards or if who knows, there were so many silly things that you, you know, uh, and they would get more serious as I got hardcore the first couple of years, the rules that I, you know, we'd have even the politics of it, which oh, yeah. is funny now, but so ACDC cheap trick, um, the Ramones, the clash, all that's like going through me and I want to play. And I already done a couple talent shows as, as kiss. And I was first time on stage spitting ketchup for blood. And then, <sighs> Um, you know, I was taking guitar lessons, trying to learn Van Halen and learn all that stuff. And then suddenly I was like, teach me these Ramon songs. And suddenly once I had the chords in my hands, yeah. I started to write. And I found out that a couple kids had a drum set in a basement, got a few people together. I'd go into the city. I'd buy a cool black shirt and a pink trash and vaudeville plastic bag, bring it to the kids, a spike bracelet. Like we're creating this band, hand them the pistols record. And um, we'd rehearse, and then I found out CBGB's had audition night, and I called from the school payphone. You just had to play original music. In those days, they didn't talk about what age you had to be or right. anything. You just, you know, we set up an audition, and I called, and we came in, and we played our set, and we couldn't believe we were on this stage where we saw photos in all the magazines of Blondie and the Dead Boys, yeah, this... who I started to really like at that point, and um, no, his bands, but. Um, we got there, and I found out years later we failed the audition because you're supposed to bring at least 15 people that drink, and we brought nobody. And it was scary. <laughs> it smelled. There was bums all over the street. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard I, to do when you're 12. You can't. It's hard to get 
15 people that are going to come and drink. No, we had one kid who pretended he was our roadie that I went to <laughs> school with. And I'm not fitting in in school. And everyone's making fun of us. But I still have my long hair because of the Ramones kind of thing. I haven't, like, changed. I have a leather jacket. We play. Yeah. And so the, the person we call back to find out, instead of telling us we didn't bring drinkers, they said, you know, you missed it. Uh, it's over already. Uh, that That's over, that scene, that music you're doing. And I was thinking about it, looking back, I was like, I guess Blondie had gone disco, the Dead Boys, Johnny Thunders, all that stuff was kind of done. The Ramones were trying to have a hit. So this is like 1979 or 80, I think. And and so they said, why don't you try something new? Like, and I said, like, what? I'm a little kid. And they're like, you know, rockabilly or new romantic. I'm like, rockabilly? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to dress up like a pirate, new romantic. Right. So uh, somehow I went out of there and, and I went to a class show and I saw this kid in front of me online, we, we were in the back of the Palladium on 13th Street, had a back door where the Ramones actually shot the Rocket to Russia cover. It's just like a loading big door. And I'm waiting. I, I found out that if you went early, you could either sneak in. I did it for ACDC. I did for a couple other things. Uh, you know, just stood in the back. No one knew. Van pulls up. And I, I'd snuck into a Ramones New Year's Eve show there. And so I'm standing here waiting for the clash. And there's a kid in front of me, shorter than me, with plaid pants on and spiky hair and and uh some dog chain and you know like bondage pants and he, yeah. you know, he looks a lot more like he's got the gear and everything and yeah yeah both waiting and he he seems kind of bratty but like he seems confident and he's not being friendly there's like two other people there and then the clash get out of a van and you know everyone's they're really nice i, I think i might have got an autograph or whatever and and suddenly the, they take the kid in and in front of me and he's go right into the club and into the theater into the venue. I was like, who the fuck is that guy? Welcome to you know how do you go in there? Yeah, kid. Turns out it was Harley Flanagan. I found out. Oh. He grew up with a band called the Stimulators. Okay, yeah. And uh, he's eleven or twelve, same yeah. age as me. And Everybody knew him. Yeah. yeah, he's in his band and he's playing. So we start to go see them. And there's kids at these shows. Mm-hmm. Now this isn't hardcore. It's kind of punky, mm-hmm. and they we kind of do this slamming thing where we knock each other to the side or we pogo yeah. and the big finale is to knock all the tables over at Max's or somewhere <laughs> or a club on 86th street. And then, you know, then you've done it. Like you've created the space and whatever, but it was very free where it was men and, you know, boys and girls mm-hmm. and gay and straight and, you know, still kind of punky. And, and so the stimulators had one single out and they were a bridge band I think to from hardcore, you know, from punk rock to hardcore, and the right. fact that Harley was in it. But a lot of people at these gigs would go on and be the Beastie Boys as a band, or Rush's right. Jackson, or girls that made the decline of art fanzine. And so um, I go back to Queens, and I'm like, I got to figure this out, and I, I got to like do something faster. And at the same time, I would find fanzines in the village, and I start hearing about what's going on in California. Uh, with Black Flag and with with Kennedy's. And we'd go into a record store and the guy at the record stores, all the little shops, whether it be one in Long Island that we'd slept to on Northern Boulevard or the guys down in the village like Nine Nine or even Bleaker Bob who would throw you out of the store, you would learn something. They would play something for you. They'd pull out a seven inch and say, wow, there's this music called Oi or you should check out the UK subs. They're like this next generation thing. If you're still hungry for the clash, like this is going on now. And suddenly the, the West Coast stuff infiltrated there was a late night program that had black flag on it i don't know some national news kind of i don't know what it was chuck dukowski had a mohawk and and right. you know, we see the plasmatics we're, we're craving anything that's raw and faster and we can't get it from the 70s acts anymore just ramones got the striped shirts now you know it's like it's, you, you wanted like danger yeah, and we wanted something wrong. We couldn't explain what it was. Like right. Me and my friend David Jacuzzi, who lived in the next building in Queens, 
he would say, yeah, raw, like it's raw. Yeah. And, uh, and then I went to Max's one night and I saw this band, The Blessed, who was from the 70s, but they were young, with Cheetah Chrome from The Dead Boys. And he, mm. everybody was junked out. And you could tell they were sure. hanging on to the past. But the promoter billed it in the paper as Hardcore Halloween. And that was the first time I saw those words written, and except for the porno theaters and the right. not right. film. You know. So I start to try to find a band that's going to be tougher. And I would use the Village Voice or I'd go put up flyers or read flyers in Flushing, Queens at the head shops because yeah. there wasn't independent record stores. The coolest place to buy a Ramones T-shirt was Jolly Joint Head Shop. <laughs> and I connected with a guy named Lyle Heisen. Oh, sure. I also had connected with a who, and I auditioned for him. But I also connected before that with a a flyer of a guy. I guess when I was initially twelve, before that for that first audition was a guy named Jack Flanagan, and he was at that CB's audition with me. He was sixteen, big guy, red hair. Uh, we recently lost him. Wonderful person. He joins Heart Attack. We rehearse in his family's basement, and we're playing this kind of punky stuff that wasn't accepted at that audition. Now, suddenly he goes with his buddies from Jackson Heights to CB's one night to see Richard Lloyd, and he sees the Bad Brains. Oh, boy. And he's like, forget what you're doing, Jesse. I want to do Total Speed. This band came out. They're in suits. It's the fastest thing. The guy does backflips, and they make the Dickies seem slow. And and so he started listening to his Ramones records on the wrong speed before I'd come to rehearsal. And uh, started playing reggae and, and and just moving fast. He was 16. Yeah. He was in high school. I was in junior high school or, you know. So he leaves the band and goes to form a group called The Mob. And oh, we can end on yeah. bad terms, but, you know, that's young high school, junior yeah. high school rivalry. And I connect with Lyle Heisen in, in, in Great Neck and some of these people. And I take my version of Heart Attack over to them. And we try another CB's audition. And we fail that. So um, I break the band down to a trio because Lyle played keyboards and it wasn't seeming to work out of it like that. And we stayed friends. He's creating a fanzine called Damaged Goods. It's chronically. Yeah. yeah. And Jack I, Rabbit's creating uh, the big takeover. Big takeover. Yeah. You know, starts out as one page. And then there's a woman that's de- uh, doing the scene as well with uh, short news. It was one page as well. Nancy <laughs> and had this thing out. So there's this thing going on in the city. And, you know, from Max's. And seeing, I finally see the Bad Brains, and I, I can't believe it. I see him at CB's, two sets. By the second set, there's barely anybody there. Uh, I start walking east further and seeing more flyers and realize that there's this thing going on. I go to a place called 171A on Avenue A and 11th Street, and I see the subhumans from Canada and the Bad oh, wow. Brains for three bucks. Wow. And in like a practice space. And it just blew that's life. Mind. Yeah, that's life-altering. I mean, yeah. especially – especially when you're at that age and you're looking to really figure out what it is you want to do musically. And um, the bad brains, you know, even in DC before they left to New York, I mean, they raised the bar um, musically um, so high. If you look at a band like minor threat and you listen to the, just listen to the musicianship of minor threat. It's like, it's not, there's, you know, it's not by, uh, accident that those songs were so tight and so well written. No, they wanted to be on par. They wanted to be on the same level as the Bad Brains. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know? everyone got the fever here. I mean, the New York scene took a lot of heat, but there was diversity in those early days at A7 and Max's where you had Reagan Youth, who was one of my favorite bands. David yeah, was very creative. That mm-hmm. first record doesn't really document how charismatic and special they were live. Um, but they were, you'd have False Prophets, very different. You had The Undead, which were like power pop punk, and I was a big fan of that. And it was it was a, a mixed scene before it got really tough guy and, and really macho and, and then seemed to get, you know, just mentally a lot more not so open and, and closed and macho. So I think, um, you know, I, I felt that the, we had a good little scene here. It was it was kind of different, but we were all influenced a lot by what was going on out West, the Dead yeah. Kennedy thing, Jello play and, and crowd surf uh, and sing out there, what he had to say, the band, that record, that Fresh Fruit record was so powerful. And at the time, the Clash and all my hero bands, they were going in a direction that I couldn't understand. I smashed Sandinista to the bits. Did you really? I, yeah, I couldn't. I had to rebuy it, you know, in 1985, and realized they were right and I was wrong. Right. But I rode the trains with the kids that were into hip hop. We would right. be at each other's throats. They hated you. We fought. It yeah. seemed like we weren't all unified to be open to this. I didn't disco and rap and all these things were. I just didn't see it. I was in that mind. I was like, "This is what we're doing. We're creating something." So, Heart Attack um, went in the studio and recorded some demos, and we we played them for Lyle and. We kind of talked Lyle into doing a single. I don't know if it was his idea to have a label and Damaged Goods fanzine suddenly did the first Heart Attack release. Um, And that came out God is Dead EP. And we were so unhappy with it that we made it a limited run of like three or four hundred copies. And uh, and it came out like, oh, it doesn't sound good. It took a long time. The pressing plants are blocked up, which is like now it's funny. It's probably nothing compared to now. I know, right? With the vital plants, and uh, and we got it out. And it wasn't. I think you know. I'm pretty sure. I, I safe to say I have. I don't. I'd say it's the best, but it is the first New York hardcore release, um, seven inch, and it, it became a rare record. And, and just this year, it's going to be the 40th anniversary, so we're going to reissue it. Oh, nice. Um, I always had trouble finding that single. (laughs) Yeah, it ended up on that uh, New York trash count. But, you know, and then the New York scene started to change a little bit. But I would go to see any of these bands that were from another place. And I went to see Black Flag and Mission of Burma. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, at the Pertman Lounge. And I go alone and I'm in junior high school and I just standing there, I go early because in those days, I don't know, you want to take every second of it yeah, in. Yeah, for sure. And you didn't really understand if the ticket said nine o'clock that they weren't going to go out till midnight, but you know, I still didn't, I wanted to get a spot or whatever. I don't know. By eight. Yeah. Yeah. And they hang around and I see this pack of kids come up and they had, uh, you know, they were all dressed really cool and, and it was like 15 or so of these kids and they were from DC and they were coming to see Black Flag. And I had gone to a lot of shows in New York. I got to say, hey, these guys, we're all talking outside. What do you listen to? And they had badges on their jackets. And and it was, you know, Ian and and a whole bunch of these dudes that that all come up. And, And so I'd start to see them at different gigs. But that night, the show starts and Black Flag comes out. And there was a couple of guys that could dance pretty crazy in, in our little New York circle. But these yeah. guys had been out west. They had seen the HB's Huntington Beach guys 
done it. Yeah. They did that down low creepy crawl thing. Yeah, the weird creepy and crawl. They like, destroyed. Yeah. They wrecked the dance floor. And in their mind, I think they wanted to wreck New York. And like re- it became a whole other thing. So there'd be a couple of guys like Mojo and James Contra and some of these characters in, my, in our little New York scene that really could hang. But they wrecked the pep lounge and they wrecked most of the people. And Black Flag just like changed my like the whole thing the way they were dressed like yeah like we're about to mow somebody's lawn and <laughs> you know fuck like what grunge fashion was that was all there from black flag you know well, this is like with des and chuck dikowski's going around in a circle beating his bass and like oh yeah they open with clocked in and it was just nuts so little by little we go see these bands and, and get to know these guys and you know i would talk to them and you know henry uh, hand me the first soa single on green vinyl and like when wow. that first came out opening the box at some necro show and ian came up with a box of records he was the you know minor threat you know Bottle Violence EP, or mm-hmm. I, I go to a record store, and before that, the guy's like, check this Teen Idols record out here, it's three bucks, and get this glossy cover. So it was like, oh, this stuff's going on, and all yeah. these different pockets, and then we would find each other in New York without cell phones, without the internet, even the Village Voice, the local paper, didn't have the shows, you had to find them on the flyers, you know, you'd, right. and they, you'd go down A7, or sometimes at A7, they'd write on the wall, uh, write on a Sharpie on a piece of paper who was playing at midnight in this after hours club, and you'd have to wait. But you could be rehearsing in Queens and go, you know what, let's play A7 tonight. And we'd take the subway in with our guitar and a little suitcase full of pedals and cables, and we'd ask Dave, the guy that ran the joint and sold Coke out of there, like, hey, can we play tonight? And he'd put us on the thing and you know maybe the bad brains are going to show up at four in the morning and play and maybe right on elmo or the mad or like it was just such a weird mix or kraut and he right. paid 200 bucks and he was selling coke out of a little noxima thing you know can and and uh and it was nice it went till six in the morning and you try to figure wow. out how to get home on two trains yeah. and, and then go to junior high school all week it was wacky but you, you felt the fever and then dave parsons had a little record store called rat cage under the basement of the street oh, rat cage, yeah yeah underneath like one seven a and then suddenly the bad rants guys are living in new york and they're like yep. living above there and they're hanging out and you see them playing soccer in the street or hr is like popping out of doorways talking about the bible now and he's got a star of david on his arm and i can't yeah. figure it out i'm like i tried to get away from all this jewish stuff and now right. I'm down here and this guy's like got this tribes of you know israel and zion and i don't yeah. know, really understand it but yet he's got a staff and an overcoat and he's the best front man i've ever seen you know it's like james brown meets iggy pop on a you know steroid i don't know it's like so it yeah. felt like you're part of something that really was happening and it was happening like when you say like use the schwartz or some telepathic thing to find how we all got together from all the boroughs and all the places at 16 years old and found each other on this corner and you know pretty much seventh and a and and you know, it was just happening in front of you. Uh, now to see, look back, my friend Jack, who just passed, who I said, who would become D-Generation's road manager, and he managed Clutch in his later years. Yeah. The mob, and they were this, the fat, their thing was to be the bad brains, to be as fast as yeah, possible. Yeah, I remember the mob. And uh, they, I credit Jack and those guys from Queens for creating the word mosh, because they'd go see HR, they try to talk like Rasta, which mm. was kind of funny, and yeah. HR would be in his reggae Bob Marley way and he'd say like mash down Babylon mash oh. mash it down and they misheard that they would say mosh and they kept saying that they put on a flyer mosh it up and like it, you know it's it's a misunderstanding that's how I really came to believe I love that. that and now it's you know rancid and you know I mean not rancid um anthrax and all those people right. 
you know, made it to a thing. And you go anywhere now, somebody's grandma will say, is there a mosh pit here? <laughs> Isn't it funny how words like that that come from like a subculture find their way into the American kind of um, vernacular? Or, you know, like, I mean, emo. Right. Emo, like was started here. People, that was a, a joke that Brian Baker made about bands like right to spring. Like he would make fun of them and he'd be like, Oh, oh wow. it's emo. Ooh. You know? And, <laughs> um, but now my kids are like, Oh dad, don't get all emo. All right. It you know, or like fun. straight edge, like straight edge was no one knew what the fuck that was outside of punk rock. And then, but now it's like, uh, you know, just the other day I heard some kid go, like some total preppy kid, like whatever, like uh, at my kid's uh, high school, he was like, I oh, know, dude, I'm straight edge. <laughs> but, you know, I can guarantee you he'd never heard of minor threat or, or SSD control or whoever, you know? So well, it's interesting how these things become uh, part of the, the American language. It's, it's always fascinated me. Yeah, it evolves. I think even the word gig, you know, it's an old jazz term. I think it means get it going, you know, get it going, get it going. Like whoever knew what we go to a gig for years. I didn't know why, what a gig, what it meant. I thought it was a job. Like, but yeah, it get it going. Get it going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's, so, that's, yeah, but the, the mosh one's funny. Yeah, the straight edge. That one's great. I just wrote a song, you know, and, and here you go. Yeah. So you really came of age in high school, um, you know, growing up you know, going to punk shows on the weekends or during the week. So were you like me where, because I was 12 when I first started going to shows, I was doing a fanzine. You were in a band. I was in a, I was doing a fanzine, but it was like, you had this weird duality. Like there was this weird double life you were leading. Like in high school, you were like the freak punk rock kid, whatever. No one understood you. But then on the weekends you'd go to a show and everyone would be like, Hey man, Hey, how's it going? And so, like, you had this tribe on the weekends, or if you were in a band, that was your tribe. You know, that was your um, – but in school, it was like, forget about it. You were nothing. Yeah, well, you were kind of, uh, you know, a punching bag or the target. Yeah, pretty much. I saw that Spike Lee film, which is in great, Summer of Sam, um, which is supposed to be, you know, 70s and Son of Sam, the serial killer. But there's yeah. a, the Adrian Brody character is this punk rock guy, and – he gets beat up really bad by these, you know, kind of uh, Goomba kids there, these Cajun guys that just, you know, don't get it. And that happened to me almost exactly like that film. And it's just somebody's film, but like, it was really bad. So I had some friends uh, that were, you know, different parts of Queens, not so close. One told me, hey, you know, there's a school in the city. Because I was going on tour then, actually. I started touring in junior high school. We wow. went to the city with heart attack. And we went to L.A. to play uh, the Olympic Auditorium with wow. the and Social D. And then, you know, we take trips. We go down to D.C. I, I, Ian booked us with uh, Scream at the an insurrection at the nine, old 930. Oh, yeah. We would get up at like 6 in the morning because of matinee and the soundtrack. Would yeah, be yeah. And drive five hours. But, like, yeah, it was it was just a thing. Wherever you went, me and Pete Stahl would trade gigs. You know, Scream would play with Heart Attack in New York. And then we'd play in dc and and you know we stay go to max rock and roll house you stay on their couch and you yeah. know every, everybody had this great community but my drummer was older so he could drive and i was still like in this place where if you went away you kind of got thrown out of school you failed you know, yeah. semester 
So I found uh, through a friend a school called Quintano School for Young Professionals, a high school in Manhattan. And it had been a real place. Steven Tyler had gone there when he was a kid and Sylvain Sylvain from the Dolls and Bernadette Peters and anybody passing through New York, like if you're an actor or yeah. Jackson, they'd throw you in there. And, and it was real. But by the time the 80s came around, it had literally degenerated to where kids were drinking 40s in the classroom, <laughs> and, you know, smoking. And if you didn't want to go to school, you could say, I'm on tour. And you'd call up and you're in Central Park, you know, drinking, but you're on tour. And they would just... I don't know. My mom yeah. wanted me to go to high school. She came from that generation about, you're going to go to college. You're going to yeah. go. So I'd go there and I uh, was going with a guy named Andy Apathy who was in Reagan Youth mm-hmm. at the time and in Urban Waste. He would be. Mm-hmm. And um, Steve Poss, another friend of mine, a punk rocker, my friend Anthony Ferranti. And so it was, and kids would come from other schools and come visit us, our friends, and couldn't believe it. It was right near Central Park. And uh, near me, the McBurney school, where I did some kids that actually went to a real school. And, and, but yet you could go, and it was very inexpensive. And uh, it was like $1,500 a year. And I had this grandmother on my father's side in the Bronx. And I said, you know, I'm doing music. And she saw some like newspaper article. And, and I was like, it's kind of like Juilliard. And she <laughs> paid for it. And uh, it was uh, wild. And I yeah. didn't know they were running a male prostitution ring out of the school. Andy Apathy says to me one day, hey, Jess, you know, I noticed you got a Japanese guitar. Do you want to get like a real Gibson? I'm like, fuck, yeah. You know, he's like, well, these guys come and you see these town cars that pull up out front. And these guys, well, we go down Atlantic City and, and you, you skip out of school and, and you hang out with these really rich women while their husbands are pay, playing blackjack. And while they're playing blackjack, the husbands, the women will pay you all this money to, to like suck on your balls for like hours. And... <laughs> And, and once in a while, you got to be with a man. And I said, I think I'm playing a class here. I, I, and, and he, you know, was into Didi Ramone and 53rd and 3rd. And like, sure. So he, he yeah. He's a bass yeah. player and he carried yeah, off yeah. Queens. He went to Forest Hills High School. Rest his soul. Another one had passed. But uh, from that classic Reagan Youth lineup. Anyway, so I, I just let that go. And I kind of spaced it out. I didn't really block it out. But like years later, I was in a bar like 20 years later, 15 years later. And. And I never went to college and my mom had passed and, you know, I just did high school and started doing music and still been doing it. But my friend, Steve Poss, he said, Jesse, you know, that school we went to Quintano's, it's like four in the morning at <laughs> like Wawa Hut, this bar. And I, I go, yeah, we went there together. He goes, you know, it, it wasn't accredited for college. And I'm like, oh, my mother's turning in her grave. Uh, yeah. They were running a male prostitution ring out of the school. And I was like. Oh yeah, right. I guess I kind of. <laughs> wow, yeah, right. That's true. Like it was really that. You just okay, <laughs> but uh, was, things like that, you found ways to do stuff. And yeah, you know, I would crash in the city at a rehearsal room with the False Prophets that became the Heart Attack Space on Avenue B. Right. And and we would you know go down there and and I worked in a health food store and lived on outdated yogurts and we would do whatever <laughs> we could. Then my uh, bass player, uh, the second bass player, Heart Attack was going to NYU, so he had a dorm at Weinstein Dormitory. So I'd crash there and say, we're, you know, we're anarchists, you know, you gotta let me crash on your couch and bring my girlfriend. And meanwhile, Rick Rubin's down the hall doing his thing. He's got a band called Hose that kind of sounds like Flipper. And right. then downstairs, the Beastie Boys guys are coming. And it, like uh, the guy who's the mayor of New York now, uh, that awful mayor, uh, Oh, Blasio, uh, Bill de Blasio, he, he's like the head of security. I, someone just recently told me, so all this crazy stuff's going no on in, in like mid eighties, like 83, 84 at Weinstein dormitory. And Lyle is there with, with uh, his band, Das Damen. And yeah, yeah, they were great. Yeah. So there's like this whole funny other energy as things start to change. 
But Heart Attack did three records, and I stopped playing in 1984. I got out of the hardcore scene because I felt it got too metal and too macho. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely happening in New York, especially. Mm. And our last gig uh, was 4th July, uh, 84 at CB's, which would be the first Chromax gig. So it was kind of showing the change there. Agnostic Front was on the bill, but also uh, HR band, Human Rights, with Earl, his brother, and Jose from the mob, who had then left the mob and became like a Rasta and moved down south to some Delaware farm or whatever with HR. So, you know, he had been in the mob. But like that was a great lineup and HR's band and him were they were still playing hardcore and reggae together. And reggae. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. I don't know if it was ever documented on an album as as something you put on and say this is what it was. But that night I remember I was like, whoa, this is great. Yeah, he's got the one album that came out around then and it was actually a really good record. And first time I saw them they played um, at a club called the, well, it wasn't a club. It was a church basement called the, um, Wilson center. And I, the band comes out without HR, the band comes out. Um, and they're just, they're just attacking their instruments. And it's just, um, the guitar player, David Byers, I remember he was incredible. And it was just like, this like, you know, really tight, like metal punk kind of song. And then all of a sudden it stops and the guitars start to feed back. And then I hear this noise in the background. I'm like, what's going on? So I turn around because I was right at, at the front of the stage. <laughs> and it's like, it's like HR is parting the sea. He comes running through the crowd and gets up on stage and does a backflip and they go right into the next song. Wow. I mean, it was like, so it, it couldn't have been more perfectly executed. And I just went, Oh my God, this is, yeah. Yeah. He had a power. I mean, him just walking down the street. I mean, Oh my God. Yeah. yeah I used to be kind of scared of him cause he was kind of a, I mean, he's a super nice guy, but if, if you looked at him on the street, like he was kind of scary. Yeah, and he could be intense. And as he got into like maybe the mid to later eighties, and maybe the later eighties part, he was, was kind of serious and yeah, yeah, to be pretty heavy. And then when they did their Zion Train period, uh, they brought all these heavy roster guys up with them, and they would play hardcore gigs, but not play hardcore, play regular. exactly, yeah, a lot of attitude. And there was a lot, um, you know, when they got deep into the roster stuff. And everybody gets, you know, has to go to a strange, strong place. I mean, I got really into the political thing. And you go too far, sometimes you lose your, with me, I lost a sense of humor, in, in a sense, and acceptance. And you become a hierarchy of yep. its own. Instead, you're trying to fight authority. And you become, an, yep. you become a fascist, you know, by saying, you can't wear leather, and you can't be, you eat meat, and you can't, you know, right. all these rules that make So many rules. I was in this anarchist collective with this guy that was older than me. We'd get together and have these meetings at the end of Heart Attack. We, you know, we were coming out through John Loder, through Rat Cage, the Crass uh, Records people. Mm-hmm. And we, the last record is so, you know, preachy as, uh, as funny as Lyle was mentioning in that minor thread. Be like, we hope it wasn't too preachy. But, and, and they said, he goes, and we're looking back, it wasn't preachy. But we, but we always felt, you know, like we didn't realize how heavy handed uh, right. we were getting. And uh, so I was in this little anarchist uh, 
like little meetings we'd have. And this one guy uh, called himself Philo Virgin. I think his name was Phillips. He's like, Jesse, you know, you got uh, you got those Aerosmith records and those Ted Nugent records and the Zeppelin. It's very sexist. It's anti-female. Uh, you got to get rid of them. So I sold them on St. Mark's Place and, and on the on the on the ground on, like the, on the street yeah. yeah and bought some uh indian food that night or whatever <laughs> and uh it, you know vegetarian food and went to sixth street and then he said you know you got uh you got the dead boys you know and, and some other record dead boys very sexist i need lunch degrading to women you got get rid of it and i was like oh all right sold the dead boys records and then about a couple weeks later he comes around he says you know jesse you know you gotta get rid of the iggy it's degrading to women, girls. This get. Re- I was like, not the Iggy. No. <laughs> I sold the Iggy, and years later, I bought all this back and realized, sure. like, you know, this is you got a this sense of humor. There's a lot yeah. more. To this, you know, but uh, we were trying to be so you know right on. It meant sure. So much, you know, I remember we went down to D.C. and it was like the scene was so important. And my guitar player had a girlfriend who was wearing like Sassoon jeans, and I was. Oh, like, can't do that why you were coming representing us, you know, but meanwhile, I'm, I'm the one that's wrong. I'm uptight. This is a person being who they are. Like yep. I'm becoming the police here. Forget this. You know, yeah. yeah. D- D- DC, I think it was Brian Baker who said, you know, punk rock has a set of rules, but DC has its own set of rules in addition to those punk rock rules. And it really, it, it, you know, he probably said it way better than I just did, but it was, um, it was true. You know, everyone's young and yeah. Trying to prove it. And they take it a little too serious. They take it too seriously. And it just becomes, it's like, you know, becomes drama when it doesn't need to be. But I felt that the scream guys didn't have that. And they didn't know rules. A couple of the guys drank or smoked weed. Like, yeah. Those guys didn't guys, yeah, early on. I could just, they were just like a band from somewhere. Yeah. They had the DC thing. They were on discord, made those fabulous records, but, and also the other bands that, some of my friends connected with was like artificial peace and like, oh yeah you know groups that maybe great were band. Going a little bit different double o and i remember seeing faith you mentioned the wilson center oh faith down in a car to see like minor threat and faith and and i think it was on the first time i ever saw somebody jump off the speakers and, and and then some and hit the floor people somehow there wasn't enough people there to catch them or they moved away and it oops was, i never saw what exactly happened to the body and that same day and this has happened a lot to make this all bad brains but someone yelled out the bad brains just got their equipment robbed like down the block like everyone ran out of the wilson center oh yeah that shit would happen all the time <laughs> yeah it was like weird crazy stuff but i just remember you know it, it, to see minor threat in dc and uh, at that time period it, it was you know worth five hours there and back and you know just every second of that whole scene was, was so great. And, and the nine thirty club with the rats, we didn't even know at the time that that's where uh, the guy booth had jumped after he shot Lincoln and broke his leg and ran. Yeah. We didn't even know that. I wish I knew that then it would, you know, looked at it differently. I just was looking at the rats. <laughs> yeah. Lincoln theater right behind the, uh, the club, but yeah, the rats were fucking, they were the size of uh, small dogs. Yeah, let's say you know, and they were really nasty. If you hung out in that back um, alley, they were just. And GC back then was super sketchy, like nine thirty club, like <clears throat> nine thirty club. It was just um, an an ordeal just to get from your car to the club because yeah. you were getting hit up for all kinds of stuff. And um, I remember even as a kid, I, I got offered. Um, love boat 
I got offered heroin. I got offered cocaine. And I'm like 15, but I look like I'm 12. So that was just on the walk from the car to the club. So, and then everyone's car would get broken into. Cause what would happen is like the, there would be homeless guys that would guide you into it. They'd be like right here, right here, right here. There's a um, parking space park right here. And then um, you would park there and either a, it was an illegal parking space. So your car would get towed. Right. Or B, um, they would expect money for for their services. And if you didn't give it to them, you came back to a car with no windows. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> TC was just – I mean, now what, the, what, nine, the what 930 – What was Love Boat? Oh, that was uh, pot dipped in, like, formaldehyde. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and acid. Yeah, like, all right, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny now because the – 930 club, the old 930 club that you played at is now a J crew. Oh my Lord. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So DC has changed quite a bit. Were those poles in there? Maybe they said at the pole. And they probably- I, I think they kept the poles in there. Yeah. Yeah. That was the weird thing. Like, oh, yeah. I know. And I don't know how, how they ever got the odor out of that place. <laughs> it's like a combination of like rat piss and, sweat and um spilt beer and just i don't even know what it was it just yeah making the last two records uh sunset kids in the new album with uh, a buddy i think is a friend of yours as well uh, with jeff sanoff yeah jeff i've known jeff for 30 years so, he's such a great guy and such a talented producer yeah so he produced the new record along yeah. with my guitar player Derek cruz and so it's hard when me and Jeff were the older guys in there, and most of the musicians are a little younger than us in my band in general, I guess, or whatever. And if they're not, we start. We have to hold back from getting into these stories about <laughs> you know hard early '80s hardcore. Yeah, yeah. And then you know he told me, oh yeah, I used to run the videos at the old 930 club. You did, so yeah. Talking about the 930 club, and suddenly you know you're paying whatever a couple hundred dollars an hour when the musician. So we have to always keep an eye on keeping that for outside the. With a couple of straight edge uh, alcoholic drinks that we have, uh, real drinks after the after the sessions, we go into all that geeking out. But uh, but he did a great job, and he's so musical and um, and just as a, a collaborator, the the two records that I just did wouldn't happen without him. So we have a little DC DNA in them. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you about that, and, and now this record is on Little Steven. Is, is it yeah, a- he has a label called Wicked Cool that he's had. Yeah, oh, this is second on that label. He's yeah. great. I, I yeah, love he his. He does a uh, lot for, for people, for rock and roll, for the community. Yeah. You know, he really shoots from the heart and puts his money where his mouth is and just kind of, you know, so many things in that channel. Uh, there's so many artists that are DJs on there. Which Such is a great, great channel. Yeah. So, and he's also involved, a lot of people don't know, I mean, the guy does so much, but Outlaw Country, which is also on Sirius, which mm-hmm. is uh, Steve Earle and a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah. Really kind of, of a cool thing. But, um, yeah, so that's that's the the new record will be on on Wicked Cool. Okay, great. And do you have a release date for that? That's uh, September twenty fourth. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm looking forward to that. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about drinks. Um, so you own four club or co own four clubs. Um, is there? Do you ever play mixologist? Are you ever behind the bar? 
Um, you know, occasionally if it's late, when it's there with some friends, you know, when you first get a club, you know, you, you start to feel like, wow, we can stay here and pull down the gates and put on those Pogues records and, and have a few drinks and, and just talk all night. And, and you, you know, you can enjoy it. It's like a clubhouse. You don't have anybody saying, turn it down, go back to bed, sure. you know, go to your room. Like it really becomes a thing. And after a while, you've had a few years, you just go and it's like, oh, it's work. You're looking at the light bulbs and the, you know, the yep. things are wrong and you, you just don't want to be there. <laughs> stress of some way, but you find other people that are excited. But I still like to have those moments. And initially the idea of opening the, the one space Niagara bar, which was a seven. Um, yeah. And so it's so funny. We have a plaque in the back for a lot of the bands that have played there in that room and that in that you know New York hardcore history. But uh, you know, it, it would be a thing like where to have some kind of Sinatra fantasy of like we can go and we can listen to music and talk about music because when you're not playing and drink, you know, just kind of be around that that kind of thing. And we started it because when I used to tour, I always loved to go. I guess in the late '90s when when I got into all this. Whichever city I'd go to, I'd try to find a bar that had the good music after the show. Sure. It was a DJ or a jukebox back then. And where you can go, and, and the bars that would give you free drinks because you were on tour and they knew that, it wasn't that many. But So I just wanted a place that would treat artists, you know, like how I like to be treated when I tour. So we gave all the bands on the road free drinks. We'd let them come and DJ. And that was the early years of Niagara and Coney Island High. Nice. spots I had. And that kind of grew from there, you know, just to have that, that space. So sometimes it's fun. I like to listen to my records in a bar. Like in LA, they do the car test, but in New York, we do the, the bar. Yeah. Test. I was going to say, I've heard of the car test, but I think the club test is, is probably way better. Yeah. Different, you know. It's yeah. Hundreds, you know. It's like so, that movie, King of Comedy uh, with De Niro. Oh my God. Yeah. One of his deals before he's going to go to jail and give up where the hostage Jerry Langford, the Jerry Lewis, yeah, Jerry Lewis, so he has to be able to watch it in a in a bar, you know, to see that he's actually. Oh, that's right. He yeah, goes that's right. Bar, but has to watch it with the cops are with him, and it's like the last bit of the deal. Like it's part of the deal. See it that it actually happened. You know? Yeah, we'll yeah. It. What's the one drink that you hate to make for people? Oh, I, I see. The thing is, I guess I didn't answer that question. Yeah, I don't really. I mean, I could go back there and make you a shot of tequila or something, but <laughs> I can't even make you know. Or what? When I was a kid, it was called a screwdriver or something. Yeah, you know, vodka and orange juice, like Paul yeah. Stanley. Or something. But no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't really know how to do all that stuff. I could only like pour some grapefruit juice in a tequila and some tequila and go. This is a cool drink here. <laughs> but no, I, I don't have that. I, I just tend to go shots. You know, whatever. Yeah, I don't right. Drink a lot less. I mean, I never got into drugs. Never even tried anything really i never even sniffed or any anything but wow. it was around me all the time so it's always been music but i kind of like drinks in a social way but i've seen it it becomes a lot less sexy as we get older and you of know, course it be once in a while but it, to me to watch so many people just you know yeah trip up into these people but it's, but it's not is, fun yeah there is a place for it i'm not like against it i think that there is some kind of loosening up as you see in cultures in europe where people go out and you have a couple of drinks sure connect and it's a social place and you can learn a lot and, and connect with strangers and it does loosen people up to be a little freer you know but uh there's dangers involved <laughs> yes yeah there are what can you tell about somebody by what they order by what drink they order oh you ever thought know. about that yes, i never really i mean you know i, I don't know sometimes i'll want fruity shots i'll say make fruity shots for everybody like you know, right sweet but um I guess, you know, it's interesting. I know from, you know, touring, going overseas and seeing people that want to, you know, got to get a proper Guinness or people that want to have a certain drink, uh, how they drink it, I guess, shots going down, like want something neat or 
but I don't know. I don't get too wrapped up in that. I kind of sit in my own corner and, you know, just do my thing. Do your thing. I, I notice that the kids these days drink a lot of crap and, and you make, you know, your business is on Bud Light or this yeah. Fireball or, you know, they're drinking the worst beer. I mean, if Bud is bad, Bud Light, I can't even imagine. It's like, you know, so. And the Corona, we used to think it was so cool because it was from Mexico and it seemed like imported, but it's really like a sugared up soda. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, yeah. it's there's not piss in there. But like, you know, it, it, I don't know. I don't think people have that kind of taste. And then we've tried having places where we have cocktails. We have downstairs in one of the bars, like a, um, a board and all the drinks are named after songs. Oh, nice. And there's like 12 songs down on this board. And my partner, Johnny T is a, a drummer in, in a bunch of projects. He came up with it. And so there'll be the teenage kicks or the, um, you know, whatever, I guess, uh, another girl, another planet. And so I had like, different people in there were Matt Pinfield or Billy Armstrong or people that really love rock and roll. And all right, if you can name every drink title, the song title, it's tell me the artist There's a Waterloo sunset. And there's a couple ones on there that even like think like Matt Pinfield or some of these experts of rock couldn't get like was <laughs> a little strange, but it's a funny list. So we kind of always have great. a rock and roll background to everything where right. if it's full of mainstream kids, we'll have videos on of like the Stooges and the MC five and, um, you know, bizarre stuff like that, just it, rarities and weird black and white garage bands and just kind of in the background and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So you've had so many collaborations over the years. I mean, Lucinda Williams, you sang with Springsteen, Ryan Adams. Um, you, do the collaborations, do they sort of up your game? Like, what does that do for you? I can't imagine, sh- like, it, it, uh, songwriting is such a sort of personal experience, you know, experience and a personal thing that you're doing. And then to collaborate with people that you admire and respect, you know, that's got to be a little intimidating, right? It is. And, and you learn stuff. I mean, before, I guess, the the first album, my first solo record with Ryan, really before that, it was just, um, I guess, you know, working with producers. We worked with Tony Visconti, right. Rex and Bowie and learned some things from working with him. We worked with, um, uh, Rick Ocasek and we picked him after, you know, so many different meetings. We had a major label deal so we could pick a producer and he was, we were like, Oh, he worked with suicide, bad brains. Fine. Let's do it for degeneration. Yeah. Learned a lot from working with, with that. And before that was a guy named David Bianco who did the first degeneration record. He did Danzig and Frank Black and he did, wildflowers tom petty and 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 so you know all these different little experiences there but then when i did the first album with ryan and he had offered to produce my solo record we did it five days because it's all the money i had at the time was Mm -hmm. five days and he was off tour for like a week and he showed up for four of the days and somehow we knocked that record out and and we didn't have a guitarist we couldn't find the right guitar player so he ended up playing lead guitar on it which he never yeah. really played lead electric but being the wonder boy he just picked up the thing and suddenly channeled johnny marr and bob stinson and we had a record you know and um and that was done and then that, so that was the first thing and i did that record that opened a lot of doors people didn't know degeneration in europe or the uk right i was lucky in a way in, in the english magazines it was like i was a new artist at 32 years old or whatever right. it was 
and and they were finally listening to the songs. You know, to me with Degeneration, I felt we wrote really good songs, had a lot to say, but we got lost up in the whether it was playing with Offspring and Green Day and Rancid that it was about the mosh pit and getting everybody to move. So they weren't really listening to songs to kids as much as feeling them. And and I'd sit on the bus and I'd listen to Neil Young and Wilco and you know Ryan had gone from Whiskey Town to going solo and so yeah. it started to push me that I wanted to strip it down and do something different. So putting out the first record was liberating because people actually the reviews were about the songs and not about the shoes and the hair and the you know New York glam rock or whatever they were trying to push us into. And I always felt Degeneration was like a hardcore band meets a glam glitter band, like kind of a mix, like this funny, you know. But it didn't really work outside of major cities. But it was a special band for me, just with the people, the energy we had because it was a real gang. Uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I always thought it was a great combination of the two. And I always thought your lyrics were not what you would expect from like a glam punk band. And um, I always felt like they got a little overlooked. Yeah, that would happen. So when it would, you know, when they would get it, it would make make a lot of sense. And we, you know, somebody would write a review or someone like David Frick or somebody would be like, whoa, one of these guys that's actually listening and gets it. But there wasn't enough of that. And it really aided us. And we weren't punk enough in one direction we weren't rocking we were kind of on our own island and so right. after seven or eight years we did this other thing and so we did the first album fine art of self-destruction with ryan and then i suddenly was in europe and playing with all these different folks and and uh that's when we got the call like from bruce springsteen like hey you want to do some stuff and it was like is this happening and his band backed me up on these holiday shows doing my songs i thought it was going to be christmas songs because it was a uh, holiday christmas benefit in asbury and, and now we played you know he played wendy and queen of the underworld and xmas and wow. so that was a, a, a you know a, a kind of a connection a relationship of you know simple i'm not his best friend or anything but we stayed in touch and he called me up to talk once in a while back then and and then i was going to make my third record and he's he was doing the seeger sessions kind of Oh, right. down, kind of tour and i went up to boston and saw it because i missed the one in new york and he said well i said i'm going to la tomorrow and he said well if you need me for anything you want to do so i'd love to you know do something on the record and in my mind i thought well he'll just like play guitar or yell hey yeah. a few times or something and and uh the producer said you know you got that song about your mom and about the radio and she was a mirror singer and singing in the car and she never lived her dreams out and died young and I said, yeah, that's a very personal song. And what about it? He says, well, you should do it with Bruce. And I'm like, what? That's Whoa. my song. You know, I don't know. It's gonna, it's not, there's no gang vocal on that. There's no hey. Yeah. Do, do I want to share this? Yeah. So I thought about it, and I was like, I don't know. And so I made it my own demo, and I sent it to Bruce with a note. I said, I don't know. What do you think of this? And I'm driving. We made the record in L.A., and then you know, I got to rent a car and a cell phone. It's so cliche. And I get the call, like, in the parking garage, and it's Bruce, and he seemed to really enjoy the track and he said yeah you know i'm down and you want to come to jersey to my studio and so we flew from uh you know uh la went out to this farm and pulled up on a harley it was like out of a dream and suddenly this is wow. a song i wrote in my apartment in manhattan and we're at his studio with the guy that worked on darkness and the river and he's engineering and my producer at the time who was making me sing everything over and over again he was like a not a metal producer, but a guy that worked in Anthrax and worked on these real heavy records where they really got deep into them and pushed each other in power and yeah, precise yeah. precision. So he, Rob Caggiano was his name, and he would always say to me, do it again, more energy. And so we're at Bruce's house, and you know we're uh, singing this song, and Bruce does three takes and turns to me and goes, Jess, you know, what do you think? And I said, it's great. You know? And Rob 
didn't care if it was Bruce Springsteen, didn't care if it was me or you or the dog next door or whatever. It was like, hey, Bruce, uh, can you hit it again? A little more energy. Oh. I was like, okay. This went on, Scott, three or four more times oh. to the point where I was like, woo. And to be honest, probably the, the latter takes that he pushed for a different type of thing were the ones that was the take that we used on the record. So that was a nice thing. And here's this song. Uh, my mom used to sing to the radio. She wanted to be a singer, sing in the car. And then here's one of the voices from the, the radio. But a lot of these things just kind of happen like that. Um, me and Lucinda Williams had been friends. We'd met at a Charlie Watts jazz gig in early 2000s and stayed in touch. We found out, you know, I always loved her work, loved her voice. She was one of the people that gave me the inspiration to be brave enough to tell stories on stage and be solo and play acoustic guitar. And, you know, her and Steve Earle and these hardcore troubadours, as, as uh, they're called sometimes. Sure. Like, you know, at, at that point, Jeff Tweedy, that, that you know, it really... I got to, I guess, as everyone does give the credit, the replacements, Paul Westerberg, where they weren't sure. afraid to strip it down and yeah. go out there and play Here Comes a Regular or Skyway and, oh, and be vulnerable classics. and then play some stupid Champ 69 song. Exactly. You know? yeah. and, and so, you know, Whiskey Town and Wilco, Wilco, they'll all give it up that it goes back to replacements. But the idea that, that you could be brave. So I, I was looking to these people that went solo. I thought if the band's under my name, that that's lame. Like, it's like Jesse Mallon, like Jackson, I got to have a mustache and wear a hush pup. Like, right. it's <laughs> me. what am I going to sit down? And then I realized like, no, I guess Johnny Thunders and Iggy Pop, like you can do whatever. And, yeah. and, and so I got to give it to Ryan and you know, that he was like, you know, just, it should be called you and that's it. You pay for rehearsals, you write the songs. And so uh, it, it became that. And, and then I guess other opportunities, came Lucinda and I would stay friends from hanging mm -hmm. out if I was in a city where she was vice versa we'd come to each other's gigs and and then uh somebody saw her at one of my shows in LA and she was writing on the bar while we were playing as she calls it her desk if she gets inspired she goes to the bar and yeah that's her thing she sits at the bar and she writes in her notebook yeah so uh her desk there so yeah desk so uh so some journalist was there from Rolling Stone and she said, how about an article pitched it to us or to my manager to Lucinda? You know, we, this unlikely friendship, she's from Fayetteville, Arkansas and I'm from Flushing Queens. And so we did this piece where we interviewed each other for Rolling Stone. And then at the end, the journalist was the mediator said, Hey, what about a collaboration? And we'd never really thought about it. And I mentioned it to my manager and he said, well, you're looking for a new producer. And you know, what about Lucinda and, and her husband? They've been doing her last few records and they've been doing with David Bianco, who did the first Degeneration album, and he yeah. was at gig in L.A. too. So we went full circle. So we went wow. out there to chat with her, and uh, we went to see her play. She invited me to see a gig at the Hollywood Bowl with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Wow! Little did we know it'd be the last Tom Petty show. Did anybody <sighs> think this? Um, we just went out. It was the Monday of the two weekend shows in the last one and and it was just an incredible incredible night and i'd seen that band a bunch of times and was always liked it but this time it was like something else was happening in the air and sun going down and that hollywood bowl thing right. so we went out and we talked about making a record the next night and a week later tom passed away and that really rocked lucinda's world and her husband and everybody because they were so close and sure everybody's world in general and it was the same day as the uh vegas shooting so it was a really oh jeez, my god yeah it was a dark time so that's heavy but, 
Yeah, eventually we said, let's get together in December then, once things calmed down. That was in the September. So we got together in L.A. around Christmas. She, like me, likes to work during the holidays. Fuck the holiday blues. Let's work during Christmas. So we, we yeah. did three or four songs. It's just like a toe in the water, and it, it worked out. And so some of these things, you know, and to work with her, you know, suddenly she's my friend. Next thing you know, I'm looking at her like, that's the woman that wrote all those songs. Holy yeah. shit. I got to bring her my lyrics. She's the producer. I got to show her my songs. Like it, it made me up my game and work harder, but it also made me nervous. But I think that can be all right sometimes. I think getting out of your comfort zone um, at times can really yield, you know, some pretty great results creatively. Well, thanks, Jesse. Thanks for uh, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed it. And uh, so thank you for doing what you do, man. And um, I hope to have you on the show again. Uh, you're a great storyteller. Thanks for having me on. It's been good hanging out. Take care, Scott.